0: one-week season. What is going on, one-week season fam? Welcome to week two, the week two edition of The Angles' Podcast, I am your host, your guest j m to win let 's get started. So week two provides a very interesting slate. Mm-hmm. The setup for this slate is very unique in that we have multiple spots with high shootout potential and then a small number of what should be pretty chalky mid priced running backs. So I am going to kind of take an overview look at what that means for our builds this week. We kind of know what the most optimal way to build is this week. The most optimal way is to build around a game environment, probably the Cowboys and Chargers, to throw on Najee Harris, to throw on Chris Carson, and to call it a day. But The most optimal way to build isn't necessarily our clearest path to a first place finish and isn't necessarily what would get us a first place finish the most times if we played out this slate over and over again. If we played out this slate a thousand times, the optimal build would hit the most often, but you would then be clumped up with everybody else who bet on that optimal build. So the times when the optimal build misses and you're building differently and and specifically building differently in a way that directly takes advantage of the ways that the optimal build could fail, you're going to have a much clearer path to first place. And through these, in example, thousand slates that we might play out here, you would get more first place finishes by attacking things in a different way. So one of the things that we always want to focus on is intelligently attacking the chalk, being different in an intelligent manner so that we're still taking good plays, we're still giving ourselves a clear shot at a 200-plus point score without needing an enormous number of just random things to to break our way, but also doing so in such a way that we maximize our chances of a first-place finish. So that's what we're going to break down at the top of this. Then we will get to this week's bottom-up build in which we will be able to explore A little bit more in terms of the various angles on this topic, this topic of how to target a first place finish this week. Before we dive into that real quickly, uh, I don't want to be sales pitchy here, but I do want to make sure that you're aware that the hefty discount for Inner Circle ends on Monday, end of day on Monday. So on Tuesday, Inner Circle will cost $50 more than it costs now. Because we're OWS, you get to lock in your entry price for life. So that means that if you purchase before Tuesday, you get to pay $50 less per year than you would be paying if you bought on Tuesday or later. We also, because we're OWS, are very happy to give you a refund if you find that Inner Circle is not a fit for you. You can just shoot us an email from your profile page. We will get you taken care of. So the risk of hopping into Inner Circle before the end of day on Monday is that you spend a couple of weeks with us getting some extra training, learning some extra things about DFS, having access to the Oracle in the scroll, and then you find that it's not a fit for you and you ask for your money back. The risk of not hopping in before Monday is that you could end up paying an extra 50 bucks every year. Now we are still bumping up the price next year to $90 above where it is right now. So you would still be getting in there lower than what will be sort of the final price on Inner Circle. But if you're more than a casual DFS player, I would highly recommend hopping into Inner Circle, seeing if it's a fit for you, recognizing that you can get that refund if you're in there two, three, four weeks, and it's not a fit for you. It's still a lower subscription price by quite a bit than basically any other site you could go to and you're getting quite a bit more than you would get from any other site. In particular, you're getting quite a bit more of what actually makes you money in terms of training, strategy Q&A. Again, the Oracle is very focused on the top four or five strategy questions for the week. Our entire team answers those questions each week. So if you don't know where to go, there are Inner Circle links on the homepage in the Edge Plus drop-down menu. And if you just listened to all that and you're still not sure if that's a sharp move for you or if it's a fit for you, uh, just a heads up, on Discord, anybody with a green name on Discord is an Inner Circle member. So feel free to ask them what they think about Inner Circle, whether or not they think that it's worth the time and money that they are putting in to become better DFS players who will have more bankable results over time. Now that that's out of the way, let's dive in. So, the shape of this slate. Going back to talking about strategy and what actually makes us money in DFS. For a long time, we've talked about OWS not being a, quote, picks site. And we've talked about the fact that picks don't really help you in DFS because DFS is not about putting good players into your nine slots. DFS is about building better rosters than your competition is building or putting those good players onto better built rosters. There's also an understanding that we talk about a lot that every week presents us with unique challenges, unique angles, unique paths to a first place finish. I've used this example before of, uh, Cal Spears, who is one of the founders of rotor grinders, one of the sharpest, uh, people you will ever meet. Uh, I was with Cal one time at a birthday party of a friend of his, and he was talking to somebody else that was kind of trying to understand what, Cal did for a living and what Roto-Grinders was, and Cal describes DFS as this unique puzzle that you get to solve every week. And there aren't a lot of people who we're competing against who register that that's what DFS is. Every week is different, and every week we're looking at that unique slate, taking all of the knowledge that we have about what it takes to get to first place, all the things we talk about as far as targeting those 200-point scores, as far as How to build your rosters so that they correlate well and so that you need fewer things to go right in order to get more spots on your roster. Correct. Taking all the little rules, quote rules, that most of our competition blindly follows and breaking all of those down to say, okay, what from this this pile of tools do we need to pull out this week in order to give ourselves our best shot at a first place finish? So what makes this week's slate so Unique. We've alluded to this throughout the week, including in the Angles email and throughout the NFL Edge, that there are just a lot of teams with high totals this week. There are 11 teams with a Vegas implied team total of 25 or more points. There are teams like the Vikings and Cardinals who are playing against each other and are both capable of putting up big scores. There are teams like the Dolphins and Bills who will go overlooked as we hit on in the NFL edge. I believe it was they combined for 59 and 82 points in their two games last year. There are the Falcons and Bucks who combined for 58 and 71 points. In their two games last year, there are the Titans and Seahawks. The Titans were perpetually in games with combined totals of 70 to 80 points last season and would occasionally have these random, unpredictable duds. So sure, we have Todd Downing calling the plays now and sure, everything looked wrong in week one. But how shocking would it be if that turns out to have been one of those unpredictable duds and the Titans come out and have a 35-point game this week against the Seahawks. And if the Titans are putting up a 35-point game, you can rest assured that Russell Wilson is keeping them right in it and the Seahawks are scoring 30 to 40 points themselves. And then, of course, we have the game that everybody will be most focused on, which is Dallas and the Chargers. So let's start there. These Passing attacks, these games that have a clear shot at shooting out. 13 games on the main slate, and we just went through five games that you could create a very reasonable case for 70 plus combined points. Not all of them will get there. And certainly it's possible that none of them get there. But we need to be aware that five games that have very clear and reasonable cases for going for 70-plus combined points is an unusual type of setup. So this means a couple things for us. There's The first thing that means is sort of a level one thing that the the majority of our competition won't think about this, but the majority of people we're competing against for first place will think about this. And that's the fact that when you have five games with shootout potential – five games as you could create a clear case for them going for 70 or more combined points, the chances of all five of those spots failing is pretty low. All five of these spots are going to get some level of ownership, and that level of ownership should generally match up pretty well with the percentage likelihood of this game being the top game versus this game being the top game and so on and so forth. So that should all come in pretty efficient, as in Dallas and the Chargers are the game likeliest, is the game likeliest to shoot out and is the game that's going to carry the heaviest ownership. Uh, Seattle and Tennessee, Atlanta and Tampa, those games are probably at the bottom of this this group of five games as far as the chances of just a pure shootout. And those will probably come in at the lowest end of the ownership. But all of these games will be covered with ownership to some extent. None of these games are going to go entirely overlooked. So the angle that most of our sharp competition is going to recognize here, not all of our sharp competition, but most of our sharp competition is going to recognize here is that if you are building heavily around games outside of these five, and you are not taking any pieces from these five games, you're essentially betting that all five of these games disappoint, and that you're guessing correctly on the game that's going to blow past all of these games. Could that happen? Yes. Is it likely to happen? No. Is it plus EV to bet on that happening? It depends on the size of the tournament you're in, but for most tournaments, probably not. In other words, if we played out this slate a hundred times, and all hundred times you decided to fade these top five games on, let's say you're building 10 rosters, and you fade these top five games on all 10 of your rosters, and you build around other spots, trying to guess right on the game or the offense that's going to blow past all of these. It's more likely than not that you would lose money over those 100 slates because even the random time where all five games disappoint and you guess right on the other spot probably wouldn't make up for all the money that you're going to lose the other times by just trying to outguess all five of these games. So that doesn't mean that you can't do something like, okay, the Browns are the Browns have potential to have the most points on this slate. And it's likeliest that the touchdowns come on the ground. But, hey, Baker Mayfield had two games last year where he threw for four or five touchdowns, where he threw for 297-plus yards. Both of those games were on low volume, 28 attempts, 33 attempts. We broke all this down in the NFL edge. But you could say, all right, I'm going to bet on Baker Mayfield because people aren't going to be on him and people are going to be on Chubb. So I gain leverage that if if Baker's getting points, he's taking away points from Chubb. And I'm hopefully soaring past some of these other stacks. But even if doing that, I would still want to say that the chances of all five of these other games disappointing are low enough that I would want to, on that Baker roster, pull in some pieces from some of these other higher probability games. So again, if we had two games with a good shot at shooting out, there could be a really strong case for saying, well, yeah, these two games are the likeliest to shoot out. But it's not crazy to think that both games could fail and that I could benefit from betting on a different spot that the field just isn't on. But once we get up to these weeks where there's four games, five games, and then you you throw in, if you're betting off of those games, you're probably betting on these more obvious offenses. An offense like the Browns, you essentially need to recognize that most of the field is going to, in one way or another, have these games covered on their rosters Which means that in one way or another, there are going to be rosters you're competing against in basically any tournament that are getting the best scores from these games. So put all that together another way. And you could say that essentially if you are betting on, if you're building your rosters around games outside of these five, and then again, we can throw in some of these offenses that have a uh, pretty clear shot at hitting. If you're building rosters outside of these clear spots, more likely than not, by a, pretty, by a pretty dramatic margin, more likely than not, even if you guess right on one of these other games and one of these teams you're betting on goes for 30 plus points and you get the right players from that offense, more likely than not, all that you're doing with all of that by adding in all this extra guesswork, by lowering your chances of getting those spots correct, All that you're really doing is keeping pace with whichever of these other clear and obvious spots ends up hitting. So again, if it was just two clear and obvious spots, we could say, well, you know, it's not that improbable that both spots could miss or at least sort of come in under expectations. But once we get up to four or five spots plus some other teams that stand out just outside of game stacks, it becomes less and less and less likely that all those spots fail, which means that since these are the spots that the field is generally going to be building around, even if you take on all this extra guesswork and get another spot correct, you're probably just keeping pace with the people who got the more obvious spots correct which therefore gives you no major edge, which therefore points us back to saying the best way to attack this slate is probably going to end up being to bet on the more clear and obvious game environments. So if we're doing that, how do we differentiate? There is one way that, again, most of our sharpest competition is going to think about, and that is, yes, we bet on these clear and obvious game environments, but we bet on them in different ways than the field is betting on them. So in the player grid this week for the Cowboys Chargers write-up, I put that entire game in in the blue chip category, and I talked about overstacking and taking overlooked plays. So Austin Eckler, Ezekiel Elliott, Cedric Wilson, uh, if things hold, his ownership projections are coming in lower. These are not the best plays from this game. Austin Eckler actually could be the best play from this game because it wouldn't be that shocking for him to go from one target up to seven or eight targets. You know, we see that happen sometimes in season with players. I'll, I'll go back to the example of Christian McCaffrey last year, his first game with Matt rule. He had, I think it was four targets in week one and there was a little bit of concern, you know, new quarterback, new offensive coordinator, new head coach. And it was like, are they going to use him the same way? And then it was, you know, pretty quickly like, yeah, of course they are, you know? And so, It would be less probable that Joe Lombardi is just not going to use Austin Eckler in that valuable pass game role than it is that this is the new offense. So Austin Eckler isn't quite in the Cedric Wilson and Ezekiel Elliott category. Ezekiel Elliott is interesting because Tony Pollard is, you know, when we used to roster Zeke as an 8K back, Zeke was an 85% of the snaps type of running back and didn't have anybody taking away pass game work from him. Tony Pollard actually mixes in in this offense. So Zeke still plays on all three downs, but not quite as reliably, reliably as he used to. Is he underpriced in the low 6K range on DraftKings? Yes, probably, but he's not underpriced like he should still be an $8,500 running back. He should probably probably be more like a 7K running back at this point. We'll see how that shakes out throughout the course of the season. But there are ways to bet on that game environment without taking the most obvious plays. I kind of break down my thoughts on this a little bit more deeply in the player grid this week. I also, in the player grid, touch on that Bills and Dolphins game, right? Like you could go Josh Allen plus Stephon Diggs. Or you could throw in Emmanuel Sanders, who had eight targets last week and almost had a touchdown. You could throw in Cole Beasley, who we know his, his role isn't super high upside, but he is used in the red zone. He can get some broken plays that, that go for long touchdowns. And he's going to get targets in this offense, You could focus on the Dolphin side of the ball. Again, we hit on that in the player grid. We're going to hit on that in the bottom-up build. So just kind of across the board, there are these opportunities in these higher total games or these games with clear shootout potential. There are opportunities to bet on players from those games that the field is not going to be betting on To, to still capture this game environment and say, hey, this could be one of the highest scoring games on the slate. There's going to be a lot of touchdowns scored. Let me get a piece of those touchdowns. But let me hope that the touchdowns go to a player that people aren't going to be thinking about as much. A player who is less likely to score the touchdowns than the player everybody else is betting on, but isn't as much less likely as ownership would indicate. So, in other words, it becomes plus expected value over time. If player A on an offense is 25% owned and player B on an offense is 5% owned. That's a five times difference in ownership, but player B is probably not five times less likely to hit for a big game at their price than player A. So looking for those opportunities is the clearest and most obvious way to differentiate. Here's how I'm going to be attacking this slate this week. On rosters where I bet on Najee Harris and Chris Carson— or Najee Harris and or Chris Carson, recognizing, again, we we'll, we hit on this in the player grid, but Chris Carson's a blue chip play this week. I thought that he would go overlooked uh, in, in, I think it was Hilo wrote up that game in the NFL Edge, and he was kind of predicting that Carson would go overlooked. Again, Hilo doesn't look at ownership until deeper into the week. And as we know, ownership doesn't really matter that much until we get to Saturday night, Sunday morning anyway, when you know enough information is in there for us to have a really clear snapshot of what the field is thinking. But it is looking like Chris Carson is going to be relatively chalky. So again, I was thinking that just because of the way that the field views Chris Carson in general, that he was going to be a player who would go overlooked and would get really nice value there. I was kind of hoping that Najee Harris, based on how disappointing his first game was, that he was a player that the field would be too scared to pull the trigger on, and that he would be a guy that we could put on a bunch of rosters and take advantage this week. But now we have a setup where those two guys are probably going to be the two most popular running back plays. They're also the best running back plays. And as we know, running back projections are less fragile than... Wide receiver projections. That's why I would typically, I am likelier to eat chalk at running back, because typically I'm not going to miss too hard on running back. I will go with the chalky running back and almost always get one of the top running back scores on the slate because we tend to have a good sense of who the chalk, which of the chalky running backs are super sharp plays, which of the chalky running backs aren't quite as sharp, and direct our focus toward the sharp chalk at running back, take the points and differentiate elsewhere. So, through that lens, the way that I'm going to differentiate elsewhere on my Carson builds, on my Najee builds, on my Najee plus Carson builds will be to bet on these game environments that I'm betting on, but to bet on some of the ancillary pieces from these game environments, to bet on some of the players who the field is less likely to be on. So, that could be something like a Josh Allen, Emmanuel Sanders, Jalen Waddle stack along with the chalky running backs. Or it could be something like Cedric Wilson and CeeDee Lamb and Austin Eckler on one of these chalky running back builds. Or, again, going back to that Cowboys and Chargers one, another way you could do it overstack that game. You could take a quarterback and two wide receivers from one side, two wide receivers from the other. You're taking five players in total from that game and basically saying, hey, if this game is a 75 to 80 point combined total and all of the other games kind of stay in that 55 to 60 range, I'm now gaining a big edge because I'm overstacking this game. I'm getting all the points and adding that to my chalky running back roster. So if playing those running backs, you have to think about how you're differentiating elsewhere. And that brings us to the layer that most of our competition won't be thinking about. Which is the fact that when we look at what the field is doing, this is, you know, I'll say it all a little bit differently than Hilo does, but this is what Hilo's always getting at when he's looking at the chalk build. We're looking at not just what gives us our highest probability of a bunch of points, but also what gives us our highest probability of a first place finish. So once we understand how the field is likely to be building, We can kind of look for the fragile points in that build, the weak links in that build, the places where we can break through and gain an edge on the field. So typically, we would say, well, these are really sharp running back plays. They're underpriced. Their roles are secure. They're in great game environments. They're going to get passing work. They're going to get goal line work. They have a good shot at 100 plus yards. So we'll take those guys and we'll bet on some of these game environments failing and we'll stack this game instead. But as we've already explored, stacking one of the less likely games this week, because there are so many games likely to put up good scores, and because those games are going to get ownership, you know, not all of them are going to be owned at the level of Chargers and Cowboys, but there's going to be games from this group that are getting 8% ownership on players, 10 12% ownership on players. People are going to be capturing the scores from one of these games. Posting 60-plus combined points. And so if you say, all right, I'm going to stack a different game and, and put that on my Najee plus Carson roster, well, we've already said that by stacking this other game, you're not only taking on more guesswork, but also if you guess correctly, all you're really doing is keeping pace with the people who hit from another game or from other games. And so if we are taking on a lesser game and adding that to a Najee plus Chris Carson roster, we really haven't differentiated from the field at all. All we've done is given ourselves an even lower chance of hitting. Because again, we're taking on more guesswork to get our big passing attack score. And then even if we get it, we're just keeping pace with one or two or three of these other spots that also get big passing attack scores. And then we still have the same running backs that those other rosters have. So that makes it, because of the sheer volume of games that could go off this week, that makes this a very interesting week in that the weakest point in the chalk build, the most fragile part of the chalk build, is actually these chalk running backs. So do we think these chalk running backs are going to fail? No. We don't. I came into the middle portion of the week before ownership started really tilting toward Carson and Najee Harris. And I was thinking, hey, maybe these guys will both be 12% owned or lower. I was considering playing these guys on, playing Najee on seven out of seven rosters, playing Chris Carson on four or five out of, four or five out of seven rosters and moving on, right? Just saying, hey, these guys are the best plays and they're going to be low owned or lowish owned. I'll take them and and fill out my roster from there. So we expect these guys to do well, but we also recognize that our best shot at a first place finish would actually be for these guys to not do well and for us to get the points that everybody else is missing. So two ways that we can do that, I'll talk about this in the player grid as well, but two ways we can do that is gaining leverage off those players. So betting on Deontay Johnson, betting on... DK Metcalf, betting on Chase Claypool, Tyler Lockett, whoever you want to bet on from these offenses, saying if if Najee fails, the Steelers probably aren't failing against the Raiders' defense. So I don't want just the Najee fade and Najee disappoints. Great. Uh, Those 20, 25% of rosters that rostered him get hurt. Well, good, But don't you also want the points that are coming from Najee getting hurt? Don't you want that one-two punch? So taking somebody like Deontay, who you could say, well, sure, maybe Najee gets, maybe, maybe his passing role isn't as big as we would have assumed coming into the season. Maybe he gets three catches for 20 yards. Maybe he gets 100 yards rushing in the bonus, but he doesn't score the touchdowns. And now you could end up with a situation where Deontay Johnson gets nine catches for 110 yards and a touchdown or two touchdowns. And you're taking away points from Najee rosters every time that Deontay scores and you're getting those points yourself. Same thing with DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, even Gerald Everett. So again, the thought would be to not just quote fade these running backs, but to also gain leverage in the way that we fade those running backs. And then the other way, to consider kind of punching through this this most fragile point in what's a pretty strong chalk build this week. Again, five games with pretty clear shootout potential and some other teams with pretty clear 30-point potential, it's unlikely that all of those spots fail and all of those spots will get at least some ownership. So the idea of betting away from those obvious spots really doesn't gain us much of an edge, On an individual case-by-case basis, those games might be a little bit fragile, but when you take the number of games that there are, it's unlikely that all of them fail, and so that's not really where we gain our edge. And again, these chalk running backs are sharp plays. It's a pretty sharp chalk build this week. So how do we attack that? Well, one way is to take different running backs than Najee and Chris Carson to basically say, yes, typically... Uh, sharp running back shock is not going to be the most fragile point of the chalk build. But because of all of these factors this week, it creates a very unique and interesting week where that is the most fragile point of the chalk build this week. So for my rosters, I will be taking a little bit of Najee. I'll be taking a little bit of Chris Carson, but I will also be trying to exploit what would happen if those guys failed by taking some, at least some Deontay, possibly some Seattle Pass catchers, as I've noted, if you take Seattle pass catchers, you really have to bring it back with Tennessee pass catchers because you're telling a story of a game in which Seattle is passing more than they would necessarily want to, which would be a game in which Tennessee is putting up points. And so you'd want to get all those points all the way around. Uh, And then I will also be branching into some of these running backs who aren't necessarily my favorite running back plays on the slate, but are very interesting plays to consider. So that would be the Austin Eckler the Ezekiel, Ezekiel Elliott, the Alvin Kamara, the Daryl Henderson. And let's go ahead and start our bottom-up build with Javante Williams. So Javante Williams last week had 15 touches for the Broncos, only saw one target. So 14 carries, one target, one reception. But This week, it would not be surprising if Javante Williams tops 16 touches. Now, as I note in the player grid, it also wouldn't be that surprising if he gets 12 touches and fails to go 2x his salary, but we're looking for ways that we can gain a first place finish ways that we can get a little bit of an edge that can push us toward that first place finish and Javante Williams is one of those places so Najee Harris can be a great play and still score 18 to 20 points Chris Carson can be a great play and still score 18 to 20 points could still score 14 15 16 points right and that wouldn't be an awful real life outcome for either of those guys in the game that they're in but if if both of them get 15 to 18 points and Javante Williams gets 22, 23, 24, you not only gain an edge in points, you've also freed up extra salary and you've set yourself up for a different type of roster construction than what the field will have. So Javante Williams is the first piece on my correlated bottom-up build for any of you who are new. The bottom-up build, we are start each position from the bottom up instead of from the top down to find the strongest value at each position not the value that we can stomach not the guys that we can say well this guy lets me fit in Kamara and Christian McCaffrey and I could see him having a good game but instead the guys that if we're actually rolling out there with these guys as our starting point on a roster we can feel pretty confident in them by starting from the bottom up we get a sense of what the sh- what the shape of the slate is, how much salary is available to play around with, and how we can fit in these higher price guys we might want to fit in with a better overall build. So this week's bottom-up build, the correlated version has 7.2K in salary left over. What we mean by correlated version is, rather than just finding the best value at each position, we also like to use this as a way to say, What if everybody was working with a salary cap of, in this case, we'll say 43K? What if everyone had a salary cap of only 43K? What are some of the techniques we would apply to not just get value, but also give ourselves a clear shot at a first-place finish? So, I know that this week on Twitter, on One Week Season Twitter... We are doing a guest JM's bottom-up build. Nobody is guessing my bottom-up build this week because the quarterback we're starting with is Tua Tagovailoa, whom I've never played before and may not actually end up playing this week, but there's a lot to like about this game. Now, I put Tua on this bottom-up build before Will Fuller was out. And what I had on this bottom-up build, talking about correlation, was Tua plus Jalen Waddell plus Will Fuller plus Emmanuel Sanders, which basically bets on a game environment in which the—well, actually, let me take a step back real quickly. I, I constantly see people saying that the Dolphins would love to run the ball and play conservatively. I'm pretty convinced that that's not what the Dolphins would like to do. The Dolphins don't have an offensive line that would allow them to play that way. They drafted Jalen Waddell. They went out and got Will Fuller. All of their running backs, well, not not Malcolm Brown, but uh, Miles Gaskin and Salvin Ahmed, both of them are much better suited to pass game roles than between the tackles roles. And it's not going to surprise me if this Dolphins team ends up averaging 35 to 38 to even 40 pass attempts per week, which would make them much more like a Falcons or Steelers type of team than like the Adam Gase Dolphins. And I think that that's kind of the identity that a lot of people still see for this team. But we have a a head coach in Brian Flores who aggressively attacks the offense with his defense. And that attacking mindset is very much part of the Dolphins' identity. So it's not going to surprise me if we actually see this be a higher pass volume team throughout the season. And we're in a spot where we know that the Bills pass. We know that the Bills are likely to put up points in this spot. And that should lead to a scenario in which the Dolphins are more likely to pass. 35 to 40 pass attempts for two in this spot. Now, now last week, the Dolphins only got to run 54 plays against the Patriots. Standard in the NFL is around 60, 61, 62 plays. This week against the Bills, with the higher pass volume of the Bills, we would expect the Dolphins to run 64, 65, 66 plays, somewhere in that range. And it's much likelier that they're going to be chasing points this week than last week, where it was kind of a back-and-forth affair with the Patriots. They're also going to be at home, which... Helps them. Sure, it helps them keep this game a little bit closer. And you could say that that increases the chances that they're going to be running the ball. But the way I look at it is if this team prefers to pass while playing at New England is the type of spot where you'd be likely to say, okay, we'd prefer to pass, but with the crowd noise and with this attacking defense and with a, an offense on the other side that we know wants to run the ball and has a rookie quarterback in his first game, let's play a little bit more conservatively in this spot. And then against the Bills, where you know you're going to have to put up points, let's open things up a little bit more. We don't have crowd noise to worry about. We can attack downfield. So, sure, the Dolphins are going to run. But I very much think that the passing attack is going to be how they they view uh, – what they view as their best path to winning this game. So with all that in mind, the idea of saying okay, this is a bottom up build. We only have 43k in salary to work with. Um the bottom up build contest that we do, we do 44k in salary what I do for these builds obviously is I just see what what we end up with for salary left over. But In retrospect, after building the roster, we're saying we've got 43 k in salary to work with. We can't get up to Josh Allen, but we can bet on Josh Allen having a big game by betting on Tua. If Josh Allen has a big game, then the Dolphins are having to pass even more. They're having to attack downfield more. So that's where we ended up with Fuller. We throw in Jalen Waddle. I'll get to Waddle here in just a second. And then instead of betting on the most obvious piece from the builds, we bet on one of the ancillary pieces we bet on, in this instance, Emmanuel Sanders. And he fits in the bottom-up build as a salary saver. So Emmanuel Sanders not a guy who I'm isolating this week as a one-off play, but a guy I may end up with on one or two of my seven rosters because I'm going to have a little bit of this Dolphins passing attack and Emmanuel Sanders is a nice bringback back because it's a way to lower your ownership while still betting on this game. That's also the type of spot where you can have a waddle, plus Emmanuel Sanders, plus Najee Harris, plus Chris Carson. You've done something very different now. You've bet on one of the popular games, or popular-ish games, but without betting on the most obvious players from that game. So if Buffalo-Miami ends up being higher scoring, you can hopefully capture big scores From that game, at lower ownership, in a unique pairing, kind of allowing you to do a little bit more, quote, whatever you want at other spots on your roster. Now, with Will Fuller out, actually even before Will Fuller was out, Jalen Waddell started really creeping into my mind on Thursday night as one of my favorite plays on this slate. We know how much the Bills struggled with slot receivers last year, we know that the Bills' entire defense is kind of designed in such a way that the middle of the field underneath is going to be their, their weakest part of their defense, the easiest way to attack this defense. Jalen Waddle played 43 snaps last week. 28 of them were in the slot. He saw six targets when Tua threw only 27 times, when the Dolphins ran only 54 plays. So if we give Tua 36-37 pass attempts this week, it's not outlandish to think that Waddle could end up seeing eight, nine, ten targets with plenty of upside in this spot in a game where, especially if the Bills are able to jump out to a big lead and start playing a little bit softer underneath, then these six, seven-yard catches with a little bit of yak could start becoming 11, 12-yard catches with room for more yak because the Dolphins, or because the Bills start playing a little bit softer, keeping everything in front of them a little bit more and opening things up even more for Jalen Waddle to have a really nice game. So, Jalen Waddle, to a uh, Emmanuel Sanders, Javante Williams, that's our starting point on this bottom-up build roster. I went ahead and threw in Chris Carson and Najee Harris on this roster. Those are the next two best values at running back. There are some guys cheaper than them that I would be willing to play, but when we're talking about where is the best value on this slate across the board, the highest certainty with the highest upside on the most missed priced mispriced players uh, both of those guys make the cut. So I was trying to decide between one or the other. I wanted Javante on this roster to kind of lower the price a little bit and to get Javante on one of these bottom-up builds. Uh, if choosing between these two, Carson is better by the numbers. He's going to project a little bit better than Najee Harris. But Najee Harris is the guy that I'm, I really like him this week. And it's going to be really hard for me to not have him on seven out of seven rosters, uh, my goal is to have him on two or three, and then have you know one or two Deontay that sort of leverages that, and then does a few other things on the other rosters. But I might end up with Najee on four and just build kind of uniquely around him because uh, I really do think that uh, basically, I really do think that he's going to be priced at about seventy five to seventy eight hundred, maybe even eight k within a month, month and a half, given his role in what should be a good offense this year. We have issues with the offensive line, obviously, but the matchup is tremendous, and he's still very underpriced. So be aware, as I'm talking about different ways to not play Najee, I'm not saying that he's not a good play. He's one of the best plays on the slate. We're just talking about how do we actually get a first-place finish? How do we maximize our chances of that? What would make us the most money if we played out this slate a hundred times, a thousand times? You have to, if you're playing Najee, you have to account for the fact that you've got to do different things in other spots somehow. You have to give yourself a clear path to first place somehow. But on this roster, we have Najee, and obviously we're doing some different things because this is a bottom up build roster. Uh, Javante Williams, other guys we could take here are KJ Hamler, Noah Fant. Uh, I didn't want multiple Broncos on this roster, even though you could justify it at their price tags. But all those guys are good fits for bottom-up build. All those guys are underpriced for their upside, not necessarily for their floor. KJ Hamler could come out of this game with five or six points. Noah Fant could come out of this game with five or six points. Javante Williams could come out of this game with five or six points. But when we talk about price for the ceiling, Hamler could put up 25 Fant could put up 25. Javante Williams could put up 22 to 25. So there's plenty to like about all these guys in tournaments from an upside perspective. So right now we have three running backs, Javante, Chris Carson, Najee Harris. We have three pieces from the Bills and Dolphins game in Tua, Jalen Waddell, and Emmanuel Sanders. At wide receiver, this final wide receiver spot. So I actually just made a change. The I've been saying we have 7.2k in salary left over. I just made a change that bumped us up to 7.8k in salary left over, and I'll get to that change in a moment when we get to the the straight value bottom up build. But Marquez Calloway, who everyone was on last week, and nobody's going to want to play this week. We can come up, as is typically the case when a guy's going overlooked, but we can make a strong case for him. We can come up with the reasons why he is going to fail this week. Well, they only threw to him two times last week and they should be in, in control of this game. And the Panthers play a lot of zone, keep the ball in front of them. So the chances of huge plays are lowered. But we can also come up with the reasons why he could have a big game this week. We saw him in preseason get like four catches for 100-plus yards. We saw him hit multiple big plays every time he was out there on the field. Callaway is a big play threat. He's an end zone threat. And the Panthers, their defense is improved. But they're not a terrifying defense for us. And so Callaway is a very interesting piece at 4,200. Full transparency, I might not end up with any of him this week just because from a strategy perspective there's not a whole lot that he provides but from a pure value and upside standpoint he's a player who stands out to me so at 4200 he is on this build Tyler Higbee I talked about Tyler Higbee this week in the NFL Edge but Tyler Higbee this this Rams offense is is incredible go watch go watch five other teams from week 1 and then go watch the Rams offense. They move at a different speed. They're more aggressive. They can stretch the field at all four corners. Uh, They're going to be really good this year. But Tyler Higbee, what really stood out to me, wasn't just the 100% snap share. What stood out to me was that in the first half alone, he had, I think it was three designed screenplays to him in the first half alone. So a screenplay is it's not even like he was the first read, right? Like on a, on a route up the seam, a screenplay means that there's only one read on the play. It means that if the play breaks down, the ball is just getting thrown into the dirt, right? There's, there's nobody else you're throwing the ball to. It means the entire play is designed to get the ball into this one player's hands in space, with blockers in front of him. And three times in the first half, Sean McVay decided, yeah, our best call right now is for Higby to be the only option on this play and for us to just try to get the ball into his hands with blockers in front of him. So that gives us a really high floor For his usage this year and gives us a decent amount of confidence that he's the type of tight end who he's 4,100 right now on DraftKings will probably be more like 4,800 to 5,200 within a handful of weeks. He might drop a little bit below that range, rise a little bit above that range based on recent production, but that's about where he likely should be priced as opposed to this $4,100 price tag that he carries right now. We also know that the Colts, with their Tampa 2 defense, filter targets to tight ends, filter targets in the middle of the field. So Tyler Higbee is a really strong play all the way around this week. He's going to grab ownership, but uh, there's a a strong case for him being one of the better, lower-priced tight ends. And lastly, I'm going to go with the Saints at defense. There's no defense under 2,700 that I feel has a good shot at getting... 14, 15 points. So it's kind of going down there to just say, well, who can get me six points, seven points, eight points, and I'll feel good about the fact that I saved some salary and got some points. But once we get up to 3,100 at the Saints, we have a team that could put up 15, 16 points. And it feels point chasey because they just dominated Aaron Rodgers. Um, and now they're playing Sam Darnold. But this is a really good defense that just dominated Aaron Rodgers, and now they're going to play Sam Darnold. Furthermore, the Saints are one of the two or three toughest teams in the NFL to run against, and the chances of Christian McCaffrey having a big game are significantly lowered in this spot, in this matchup. And that's kind of how the Panthers' offense is built. It's built from Christian McCaffrey outward. So if Christian McCaffrey is getting slowed down, it makes it that much more difficult for everything else that the Panthers are trying to do to develop. And so you take Sam Darnold, you take his mistake proneness, you put him against the Saints' defense, and the Saints at 3100 are just a really sharp play. As I mentioned in the player grid, there all of the... Sharp plays at defense. None of none of the sharp plays at defense come with super high certainty and low ownership. So I wouldn't mind branching outside of the most obvious plays on defense this week in tournaments, but from a standpoint of what the best values are, the Saints stand out. So that gives us a correlated bottom-up build of Tua at quarterback with Jalen Waddell and Emmanuel Sanders paired with him. Javante Williams, Chris Carson, and Najee Harris at running back, Marquez Callaway filling out wide receiver, Tyler Higby at tight end and the Saints defense, spending 42.2 K in salary and leaving 7.8K left over. So we used to, before we started doing kind of the strategy-based bottom-up build, we used to do a straight bottom-up build where we just say, who are the best values? This week, the straight bottom-up build is actually kind of just like a different correlated bottom-up build. We still have Jalen Waddell on it. We still have Marquez Calloway. We still have Chris Carson and Najee Harris. I replace Javante Williams on this roster with K.J. Hamler. We still have the Saints defense. What we have done differently is instead of Tua and Emmanuel Sanders... And Higby, we have swapped over to Matt Ryan, Russell Gage, and Kyle Pitts. As you see, that's still very correlated. But Russell Gage, the uh, easiest way to attack Tampa is in the slot, is over the middle of the field. Russell Gage had two really nice games against Tampa, and that's two of the Falcons' last four games. Played. So Russell Gage is a guy nobody's going to be on. Russell Gage was actually initially in that other bottom-up build over Callaway, mostly because I only wanted Callaway in one of the two, since I don't plan on isolating him and playing him this week. Again, wouldn't mind playing him. I'm just not gaining any major strategy there. And so it's just kind of like guessing on this player and hoping he has a good game. And it's still a player whose game environment doesn't set up with, you know, huge green arrows pointing to him saying this guy's probably going to hit. So it's just, it's just a guesswork type of play. So, uh, like Callaway plenty love him as a player but don't see a major strategy angle there so I didn't want him on both bottom up builds but on the other bottom up build he fits better than Russell Gage cuz Russell Gage doesn't really fit into that story Russell Gage is 4800 Callaway is 4200 I would prefer Cam- uh, Hamler probably over Callaway but Hamler is was on the we had Javante Williams on that roster so I didn't want both of those guys on that roster um so on the second bottom-up build we have this gauge and Pitts pairing which costs 10k in combined salary on DraftKings could very easily we could we could come up with these scenarios in which this pairing goes for 40 or more points uh if this game does become a a non-stomp fest, a non-blowout. If this game is even relatively competitive, like the last two times these teams played, last week 15 and, and week 17. Uh, and in fact, let's tell the full story here. Julio missed both of those games. And Mike Davis is a better running back than the Falcons had in those games. Not that that really matters because you can't run against Tampa anyway, but this was last year... A Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley, Russell Gage offense in these two games against Tampa, in which Atlanta put up 27 points both times. And as laid out in the NFL edge, Matt Ryan threw for 356 yards and three touchdowns in one of them. He threw for 265 yards and two touchdowns in the other. Russell Gage again had, uh, what was that, 17.8 points in one, 24.1 points in another. Uh, Calvin Ridley had one disappointing game and one game of 10 for 163 and a touchdown, which comes out to over 35 DraftKings points. Same offense, except we've now added Kyle Pitts. So. Yeah, the coaching staff's different, but we have a better offensive play caller now than we had in the past. And just because they looked really bad one game doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to look bad this game. So, that idea of saying Matt Ryan plus Kyle Pitts plus Calvin Ridley, or uh, sorry, plus Russell Gage, you're spending a little over 15K in salary. And you ask, can these three players combine for 60 plus points? Well, as we talk about, take away quarterback scoring. And typically, a team is going to put up 75 to 95 DraftKings points once you take away quarterback scoring. Even teams that just kind of bomb still put up about 60, 65 points most weeks. It's rare that you get a 55-point total offensive output. So if we say, well, Mike Davis is in this awful matchup against the Bucs and let's cap him at 10 points, all we then need is a scenario in which Calvin Ridley kind of gets slowed down. He's the focus of the Bucks' defense. He gets slowed down. He maybe puts up 15 to 17 points. And then the ancillary pieces on the Falcons don't combine for that much. All of a sudden, we're saying, well, Calvin Ridley plus Mike Davis plus these ancillary pieces maybe combine for 35 points, even 40 points, and we give the Falcons 80, 85 points. Well, all of a sudden, we're looking at Gage and Pitts in this scenario, if the game plays out this way, combining for 40 to 50 points. If that ends up being the case, if Atlanta's competitive in this one, then Matt Ryan is underpriced at 5,600. So we could end up with a situation where Pitts and Gage combine for 50, Matt Ryan puts up 25, and you're looking at 75 points, or almost 5x the salary that you spent, keeping you on a 250-point pace, with over 30% of your salary cap. So there are ways for this setup to fail. Russell Gage could put up six points and Kyle Pitts could put up nine points and Matt Ryan could disappoint with 16 or 17. And you're sitting at under 40 points with all three guys combined. But there are other ways this game could play out that could lead to this being a really nice pairing. And so it is typically we don't dive into the straight value bottom-up build, but because it's kind of uh, just like a second version of the correlated bottom-up build, I wanted to lay out my thoughts on those guys as well. And uh, as I hit on in the player grid, that's a game that will also be sort of on the fringes of consideration for me this week. Okay, that does it for this week's Angles podcast. A reminder, check out Inner Circle. Again, the early bird discount goes away forever at the end of the day on monday we'll save you 50 bucks a year and if you join and find that inner circle isn't a fit for you you can get your money back so it's it's no risk to join and uh, you could justifiably say that if you'll ever have interest in inner circle uh there is risk to not joining so just want to remind you of that keep that in mind this week with that We are done with the Week 2 Angles podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with me this week, with OWS this week. I will see you on Discord a couple times on Saturday. I will probably be dropping a late week update to the Player Grid late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. That's just assuming that things will change in my mind as we get closer to kickoff, or I shouldn't say change in my mind, but adjust a little bit in my mind as we get closer to kickoff. So I will see you there as well. And if you are Inner Circle, I will see you at Hilo and Zandamir's Slate Strategy Breakdown on Saturday, and I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.